This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young, we're all my superstars. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me this lovely Friday to my show, Carpe Diem. And uh, I'm very grateful and very excited to be joined today by my guest, John Priestner. So as I normally do when I have a guest going live, I'm just going to give a little bit of an intro, a little bit of a bio on John, and then we're going to switch it over to Unscripted Dialogue. And I can tell you, you've tuned into a really exciting show because uh, prior to going live here, we've got John all fired up behind the scenes. So this is wonderful. So Mr. John Priestner was born in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and attended Western University, also in Ontario, Canada. He was drafted in 1979 by the Baltimore Colts of the NFL, drafted number 280 in round 11 in 1979. After a year on the Colts injury list, Priestner signed with Hamilton in August of 1980. In his first full season with the Hamilton Ticats in 1981, Priestner was named an East Division All-Star and became a team leader, winning two Vanier Cups as the team's linebacker. John was a heavily recruited footballer. We also considered um, one of the high, was also considered one of the high school top high school prospects in the province before his career took off. Many of Priestner's Burlington Nelson high school classmates had also decided to attend Western University when they learned that John was going to attend University of Western Ontario as well. John Boy was Priestner's nickname coined by his Western teammates. So Priestner is now president and CEO of Vendome Resources and remains to this day a stellar example of leadership, humanity, and kindness. And I'm very grateful that I had the privilege and the honor of sharing in a meal and loving conversation with John when we were seated at the same table on May 15th at the 2015 induction banquet for the Hamilton Soccer Hall of Fame. John was also very gracious in purchasing one of my books and in agreeing to be my special guest on radio today. So, John, welcome to my show, Carpe Diem. Thank you very much for joining me. I know how busy you are and how invaluable your time is, so thank you once again. Lisa, thanks very much for having me. It's a really great honor. Yes, well, lovely to have you. And uh, so why don't we just start off with football? So can you tell me a little bit about why football specifically? Was it your passion? Was it in the family genes? Uh, did you know automatically that you had skill and talent there that you wanted to, to hone and harness? I played organized sports probably from the time I was five or six years old. Fortunately, growing up in Burlington gave us a a really progressive uh, environment. A lot of baseball was played, hockey, it was, you know, rep hockey and uh, league hockey was uh, very well entrenched in Burlington during those years. Basketball was up and coming. Uh, track and field, Burlington had a track and field club. Uh, and, and all of the schools, the primary schools and the high schools, all supported these sports as well. Mm-hmm. Me, I was pretty much a four-sport guy. I played baseball rep baseball in Burlington all the way up to junior. I played uh, basketball all through high school. I was on the uh, Burlington Legion Track Club and the high school track team through high uh, all through high school. And, of course, there was the football thing. Mm-hmm. And to be quite frank, I was going to the NBA. I was going to be a basketball player. 
Really? Well, I mean, I, that was what I, I sort of thought when I was in those, you know, formative grade seven, grade eight, grade eight, nine years. You know? <laughs> and right. uh, then I realized that was pretty six two and pretty Canadian, and it wasn't going to happen that easily. So, <laughs> right. Part of me. I said that's excellent. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, I was a skinny kid, but mm-hmm. pretty pretty aggressive, and uh, I, I guess I was good enough with my feet and good enough with my mind to be able to play the game. So. I was always there in football. I was very young when I left high school. I was 17. I was uh, played middle linebacker in my grade 13 year at Nelson at 172 pounds. And, you know, so I was what I would consider very undersized at the time. By the Mm -hmm. time I hit my second year at Western, I was 228, you know. So, I mean, I gained 50 pounds over the course of about 15 to 16 months. So my growth spurt, like I was only 17 when I when I graduated from high school, so I was still pretty young and had a lot of growing ahead of me. So football took off clearly in grade 12 and 13, where it was pretty clear that I had uh, more talent than I remember maybe ever appreciated. So, but mm-hmm. Western officially dra- uh, officially recruited me as a basketball player, and when I said no, I didn't think that was going to happen. I'd rather play football. They had their football coach, the new head football coach, Darwin Simoniak, down on my doorstep within 48 hours. And from there, we struck at a relationship that was uh, pretty unbreakable. And, wow. uh, you know, he, he did some great things for me at Western, and it was those formative years at Western that took me from being a boy to being a man and prep, mm-hmm. prepped me to leave Western after three years to go uh, make a shot at the NFL, at which time I was only 20. So, wow. Pretty interesting. Well, pretty impressive, too. Yeah. So. Being a sports enthusiast and, and knowing that there was a, a variety of sports that caught your attention, you know, when you weren't at the age of actually playing, uh, who was it that you grew up in your home, either watching games on the television with your family or, or seeing live games? Who who did you look up to? Well, of course, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs were always uh, in vogue and they still seem to be, but haven't done so well. I think the last time... I, I was watching the last Stanley Cup that they were in. That was, you know, one of my childhood years in grade seven or grade eight type of thing. But um, the Hamilton Tiger Cats were certainly the team of choice. I mean, I used to love to go to the games. I played in a, a rep football league here in Burlington where four of the rep teams were from Hamilton. So we got to spend a lot of time there. We got to go to a few of the games and sit in the uh, the cheap seats, that they used to say, you know, the $1 Loblaws cheap seats. <laughs> and... Uh, but I, I mean, I loved Gurney Henley and you know Angela Mosca and uh, John Barrow and you know John's son Greg later became a very good friend of mine as we uh, we met at Western years later, and you know these are the guys Tommy Grant and uh, Tommy Joe Coffey and you know even even old Filoni and guys like that. I mean, I loved the CFL. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I watched it religiously and, and I, pretty much until the end of high school, and then I just had too many other things to do and lost a little bit of touch while I was trying to make my way myself, but. Yeah, we were Toronto Maple Leaf fans at the house, and we were Hamilton Tiger Cat fans, and baseball was not really prevalent at that time, so I never spent a lot of time watching baseball. I used to watch track and field all the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, and other things. I mean, I like I like watching uh, women's figure skating, women's gymnastics. I also thought they were ex- outstanding athletic achievements by the uh, by the ladies, and so I wasn't really Absolutely. I wasn't really attached to any single sport or any single event. Uh, I was pretty broad and diversified. And you know, thanks to my parents for giving me the um, 
pointing me in the right directions, let's say that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, prior to your position of being a linebacker, had you wanted to try out other types of positions, or was it very clear that that was the position you were meant to to own on the field? I played, uh, as high school progressed, I was playing linebacker and fullback. So I ran the ball a little bit uh, in, in grade 11, grade 12. Not, I didn't run in grade 12 at all, but grade 13, I ran the ball again. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed running the ball. It was fun, but... The difference between high school and university, as I know now, being on the linebacker side, is I'd much, much rather be the hit-er than the hit-e. Right. It, uh, it it was just one of those positions that I like to defend. I, I, I like snuffing out of play. I like stopping the offense in their tracks. Uh, I, I found that the, the science of the defense, we had to now understand what the offense was doing first and then make our play because of that. So. You had, as a linebacker, you had to be in a thinking position more times than you had to just be out there showing whatever athletic ability you may have had. Right. And, and when you look back, you know, where you're at at this stage in your life and you reflect, reflect back on your career, you know, were you able to appreciate to the degree that you were talented? Did you, did you understand the scope of your magic on the field and what other people saw in you and, and sought out in you? Did you, did you grasp that? Um, yeah, for sure. For sure I did. And, you know, I, I was surrounded by uh, athletes in my own family. I have an uncle, Dan Maloney, who played in the National Hockey League for 13 seasons and then coached a number of years after that at the National Hockey League, head coach for Toronto, Winnipeg, coach in, Winni- in uh, New York Rangers for a while. Mm-hmm. A sister, a cousin, Kathy Priestner, who won a silver medal in the uh, 76th Olympics. 72, she came fourth in Sapporo, and then 76 was Innsbruck. And, you know, so we have, we had a family of people that already knew what talent was. So they were Mm -hmm. probably more instrumental in keeping me focused on the game ahead of me rather than how good I thought I might be. Mm -hmm. And my family had a real good way of, uh, of of keeping you humble. So. I may have known how good I was, and I had to have appreciated how good I was. And internally, you had to be sure that you were as good as or better than anyone, because if you didn't, you were, you were never going to be there. It's Very true. not just the physical side of it. It's how mentally tough you can be. And mm-hmm. the mental toughness is something that came from maybe a little bit of heredity and a, and a lot of pestering by my family. Mm-hmm. So, but that, that was, I, I think, the mental side of it. Yeah, I did know. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I couldn't have been there and not know. I mean, I, I was the second kid drafted out of a Canadian university, so all of a sudden people are looking at me going, wow, wow, and I'm going, really? I'm just supposed to do that. You know, I didn't I didn't think much of it other than that. I was just like, well, it was something that I was just supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, as time passed after that, I, I maybe lost a little bit of sight of how that was, and it wasn't until the last 10 years, let's say, when people started asking, hey, why don't you come back and visit us? Why don't you come back to a, an alumni event? Why don't you come out to a golf tournament? Uh, you know, and, uh, well, hey, we want to put you on the Wall of Fame over here at Western and this and that. And it was only at that point in time that I realized that maybe I had been a little bit selfish. And it really wasn't about me anymore. And it really was about those were the people that were there that supported you. Those were the people that were there who... Uh, who, who wanted to see you do well, those were the people who, in fact, assisted you in your matriculation through the, through the process as time went on, you know, at each different stage along the way. Mm-hmm. And it's for them that, 
these awards and uh, these post-career accolades are, are given. And I didn't really know that until I had my first stop back at Western. And, you know, I, it was a, a real eye-opener. And mm-hmm. it had me thinking. It really made me think about uh, what was necessary in order to fulfill what they put out there, what they did, how they influenced my career. And this was not just my reward, but it was their reward. And mm-hmm. I needed to be uh, cognizant of that fact. So Excellent. that was a little bit of an eye-opener for me. And, yeah, you know, it's all tied in, and it, it's, it spans 45 years, you know. So did you write out thousands of thank-you cards? or? <laughs> well, I just tried my best since I didn't didn't remember everybody's name. I, I, uh, I just I tried, tried my very best to acknowledge any and all who had participated. And I said, I wish I could tell you all because there were literally hundreds and hundreds of people that were involved along the way, and maybe mm-hmm. even thousands that I wouldn't even have thought of. But they were there. Mm-hmm. They did something. You know, one was a treasurer in the league, or one was the guy who brought water or oranges. Somebody else may have been my best confidant for, you know, my mental preparation. Somebody else mm-hmm. was my strength coach. Somebody else was a guy who showed me how to run, you know. There was just mm-hmm. there were literally hundreds and hundreds of people that crossed my path that had a piece of my success, uh, you know, as time went on. Beautiful. So I owe an awful that. lot to an awful lot of people, and mm-hmm. not being visible and not coming back to the public was probably something that I'm, I'm regretful of now. But I'm back in the public eye these days. I'm coaching and doing other things. I am re-contributing that which others had given me and hopefully giving someone else that same opportunity, at least with my little bit of a uh, an effort going forward. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that. And I'm sure many people who are tuning in here today, because, of course, I've been ramping up our show uh, all week, and uh, a lot of people are, are big fans of yours. So for those of you who are listening, uh, this is John saying thank you. And I'm sure people already, you know, know that deep down anyway, John. So sometimes we tend to be a little bit too hard on ourselves. But uh, obviously for all the accolades and, you know, all the support and encouragement that you've gotten throughout your career, I'm sure there's been many speeches that you've given, and I'm sure there's been lots of opportunities without you maybe even recognizing it in its entirety that you have acknowledged that. So, but uh, what I'd also like to ask you, John, is, you know, for all the mentors that you've had and all the people that you've just cited that have played a pivotal role in your success, what do you believe constitutes uh, the ingredients, the essential ingredients that would uh, separate somebody being a phenomenal leader, coach on the field, to somebody who is okay but perhaps maybe has a better team that just carries them as the coach? So what, what do you think constitutes being an exceptional leader? That's a pretty diverse question. There's there's many angles to come at it. I'll try a simple approach. Okay. As a coach, a coach can only be as good as the horses he has on the team, right? Mm-hmm. If the coach has a bunch of, of individuals that aren't quite first class, you know, they may work hard and try hard and work well as a team and that type of thing, but they may not have that uh, those special individuals that take a team from mediocrity to greatness. Mm-hmm. And a coach really needs to have those people. However, the, the coach, the good coaches, the great coaches also see talent that may not have been previously expressed, if you will, and they are able to take that talent, which they see, which, which is the, 
you know, they, they have the draft every year, right? And in that draft, there's the number one, number two, number three guys picked in the draft. Well, if you go through history, not every one of those first-round draft choices are, uh, you know, the, the second coming. Many mm-hmm. of them fail. And many of them fail for a variety of reasons, and they're not always the physical reasons because they wouldn't have been there if they didn't have the physical tools. Mm-hmm. It's extracting the other nebulous characteristics of a human being that's going to make him better. You can have ten guys, all best linebackers in the world, for example, and every one of them has got something slightly different in terms of being he's the best at that or he's the best at that, or he's stronger at this, or he's faster at that, or he really knows how to hit a guy, or he really knows how to cover a man. Those mm-hmm. are the things that a great coach sees and then can extricate from them. And sometimes the individual who's having this talent extricated from them doesn't really even know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And that is what a great coach does. There are many good coaches out there, and there are a lot of great people out there who coach because, you know, it's something of giving back, but they're not necessarily those gifted few. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I hate to use uh, the examples out there, but if you, go, if you go back to the Dallas Cowboys, for instance, Dallas Cowboys were perennially successful. Uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, for a period, were perennially successful. The New England Patriots have been perennially successful. Um, you know, the Tiger Cats were perennially successful. Every one of those has a name like Landry, Noel, uh, Belichick, Sazio, all of these guys were exceptional coaches. Ex- mm-hmm. Exceptional in the fact that they could get the talent that they had in front of them to their best levels on a much, much more frequent basis than any other team or any other coach could do. And, uh, you know, my coach at Western, Darwin Simodiak, uh, he, he was a man like that. He kept me down the straights and narrows. Uh, he was able to guide me when guidance didn't look like it was going to work. You know, <laughs> that's that's the that's the key and and the, um, the 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 greatest things that you can have in a coach. Being able to see and then get that that wealth of talent out to the surface, unlocking it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That's what makes a great coach, and a variety of things that do that, but. If you look at the National Football League, everybody gets, there's 1,500 players, let's say, and the mm-hmm. top 10% of those players are better than everybody else. The other 90%, there's probably another equal number of guys that aren't playing the game, but are equally as talented. Somehow or other, they weren't in the right place at the right time. They didn't, you know, exhibit that, uh, that exception that others may, uh, you know, that they needed to, and so somebody else took their spot. Well, when you take a look at that, when you divide it by the 30 teams, that 150, 10% guys, each team gets three, okay? Mm-hmm. And the team that has five, uh, sorry, each, each team gets five. Each, the team that has seven of those exceptional people, they'll win the Super Bowl more often than not, or at least will be a contender down the stretch in the playoffs. The mm-hmm. team that has only three is going to be at the bottom of the totem pole every year. So... Those, that's what the difference is in winning and losing. It's what the coaches can get out of those guys. And you find that every team has the same, uh, the same roll of the dice, so to speak, to pick those players. But yeah. you'll see consistently that it's the Landry, the Knoll, the Belichick, you know, the Sazio, those guys, the Samodiak that gets that extra mile out of it and makes that number five into a number six and a number seven so they end up with the talented players. 
So mm-hmm. there's no magic to it. This is this is an art, and they know how to do it, and there are very very few. And so when you when you look at the coaches in the NFL currently, who do you really look to uh, as being above everyone else for whatever reason? Well, Belichick's the guy. Okay. In my in my view, I mean, for 15 seasons he's been over there. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that he's the guy. Okay. You know, there are many others out there, but this guy's got five Super Bowls under his belt. True. You know, that, that's uh, that's an exceptional record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They've had a guy named Brady, but you know Brady wasn't a high draft choice. Somebody took him, and it's been one two the whole way. They have taken that same team five times or four times over this period and rebuilt it. Mm-hmm. They've they've taken it, dismantled it, and built it. You know the um, uh, Pat Gillick in the Blue Jays when he was with the Blue Jays years ago. He did the same thing. He built that team that ended up winning those two World Series. And over that fourteen year stretch, just from just after to the sort of ten years prior, the Blue Jays were the winningest team in Major League Baseball for that fourteen fifteen year session, uh, the period of time. That didn't happen by accident. That happens because of the skill level, the intuitive level, the intuitive skill level, something that's it's intangible. That's what these guys have. So, like, there aren't that many guys like that out there. Right. So, you know, Scotty Bowman's another example of that. These guys are people that have unbelievable gifts for finding and developing and rebuilding talent on a perpetual basis. Anybody mm-hmm. can win once. The horses can make sure of that. But right. do it perennially, that's an art and a gift. Very true. And so when you when you reflect back again to your days, you know, what what do you think was was the part of your story that made you magical? What what made you John Priestner on the field? What made you sought out? What made you admired? What do you attribute your magic to? Physically or sort of... However you, the, however you choose to interpret that. Yeah. Well, I know what my gift was. My gift mm-hmm. was my first two steps. I had mm-hmm. very, very quick feet. Now, was it because my feet were quick? No, I wasn't the fastest guy. Uh, I was very strong. I still am, but very strong. And in an era where strength wasn't... You know, strength was just coming into the uh, into the world. The weight room was something that hadn't been done all that much. You know, it was a really new phenomenon in the 70s. And mm-hmm. I latched onto it, and, uh, you know, my body grew and developed. But I had two steps. My first two steps, my goal was to never get touched. If I had to get touched, I was probably not going to be, a, you know, a big participant in the play. But it was the ability to see the play, interpret the play, and then make that synaptic connection between my brain and my feet. And that was my gift. There's no, there's no doubt about it, combined with the strength and all the rest of it that goes with that. But that was my specific tool and toy that I could, uh, could actually say that why was I a great linebacker or a good linebacker or an average linebacker? That's what made me as good as I was. Okay. And when you, again, look throughout the course of your, your journey on the football field, you know, we, as you mentioned, and, and everybody knows too, in every aspect of life, you know, it's particularly sport. It's, uh, it's not just the physicality, but as you pointed out, it's, it's the mental 
it's the mental tenacity. It's the, you know, the, the perception, the, the what you do and with whomever coaches you along the way to kind of keep you grounded and keep you focused. So when you review back on the days of being on the field for key games and, uh, you know, playing your best every game, did you ever struggle mentally? Was there ever a period of time where you, you kind of lost your edge or, or did you feel that you were quite consistent with that? Were you, were you mentally sound consistently? <laughs> there are many that say I was never mentally sound. <laughs> but uh, to be more serious, to answer, try to answer your question. Yeah. It, the stability of one's mental, uh, you know, mentally on the field is not just influenced by that which goes on in the locker room. Um, many people uh, are influenced, not many, all of us are influenced by the stimuli we receive every day and, you know, people's personal lives, uh, you know, uh, my dog died or, uh, you know, I just had a new baby or, uh, you know, geez, I just, I just got uh, an award given to me or I was, uh, you know, I just met a new friend uh, or, you know, any one of these extraneous events has the, has the, a way of taking you, uplifting you or sometimes pulling you away or, having you fully focused on what your your game, your task at hand is, or having you distracted. So mm-hmm. the players, all players, like how can you be the best one year and not the best the next year? What happened? Something mm-hmm. that wasn't related to the sport itself happened. That's the only mm-hmm. way I can describe it. And mm-hmm. I think that uh, it's important that football, baseball, all sports, if you want to be performing at your top level, you have to find a way to turn off the extraneous stimuli that you're bombarded with every day. And mm-hmm. that, for many people, is an incredibly difficult challenge. You know, um, the guys and the girls of the world that are emotional about stuff, that tends to, you know, rise and fall, makes their uh, their their individual, or, sorry, makes, makes the outcome of what they're about to do at that moment in time is now influenced or affected by their emotional well-being or their emotional state. So everything ebbs and flows, and I, I, I don't know how you do it other than to you have to consciously say, and I started doing this in high school, you know, in basketball, um, I would sit there and, you know, guys, don't talk to me. People mm-hmm. would just know to stay away from Priestner because, you know, he's crazy. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't crazy. What I was, was I was sitting there trying to get in the zone, trying to get into uh, what's going to make me do well. What am I going to do out there on the court tonight that's going to make me do well? Who am I playing against? Why am I playing against these guys? Can I handle these people? What am I going to do that's different? They already know I do all this. This is the type of thing that you have to mentally prepare yourself for every athletic endeavor you do. You have to do it for business as well. There's no two ways about it. You don't walk into a a big business meeting with no preparation done. You've got to know the ground rules and the game and what somebody wants. And if you can figure out what somebody wants, you might be able to make a deal because of it. Well, football and baseball and every other sport's the same thing. You have mm-hmm. to be prepared mentally. And when you Absolutely. have extraneous factors uh, wreaking havoc on your emotions, you are not going to be as successful as you would mm-hmm. have been otherwise. So before you go into a business meeting, are you sitting hunched over in your chair with the don't come in my office sign? Or <laughs> Well, to be honest, some people would think so. <laughs> Not always. I mean, business is a little bit different. Like the yeah. business tends to be over a protracted period of time usually where mm-hmm. 
the a sporting event is right now. It's at 2 o'clock, kickoff at 2.07, here we go. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a little bit more flexibility. So it's not quite as intense as it used to be, although there are periods where people kind of wonder. Yeah, stay away from him. He's cranky today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, before we switch gears to what we were talking about pre-live, uh, what I'd like to ask you, because I'd be remiss if I did not, is tell me about your first Vanier Cup. Tell me what was going on for you, uh, what was going through your mind. You know, was it an out-of-body experience? Was it surreal? Uh, was it anticipated? Was it, yeah, absolutely, we we worked hard for this, we deserve this. Uh, of course, this is where we're going to be positioned. So tell me a little bit about what that experience was for you. Yeah, what a, what a an unbelievable time. Um, you know, I was uh, just turned 18, uh, university, first time. I'm, I'm a freshman starting at middle linebacker, inside linebacker. We ran a 4-4 at the time, so there were four linebackers. An old five-year veteran to my one side, John Jewell, you know, and uh, Duncan McKinley and Phil Noble on my, uh, on my outsides. And, like, it was just one of those experiences that, how did it happen? We weren't supposed to be there. We lost two games during the regular season that year, one to the University of Toronto and one to uh, Windsor. And uh, we managed to – Toronto didn't end up being in the playoffs against us. Laurier knocked them off. And we went down to Windsor and were supposed to lose in Windsor on a horribly muddy, muddy, muddy day, you know. So we weren't supposed to be the guys there. And I remember watching the game, uh, or not watching, but it being in the game against the University of Toronto, and a guy named Langley, Langley was the quarterback. And we had this one defense called, and uh, I made a little shift on from the linebacker spot, and he read it, he looked at me, and he went 56 yards straight up the middle on a quarterback sneak. And I went, uh, hey, wait, come back. You know, <laughs> So we weren't supposed to be there. But somehow or other, we managed to rally, and uh, we knocked off Windsor in their own stands, and we knocked off uh, Laurier after that, and then we knocked off, um, I believe it was UBC who we played in seventy-seven or 76. We knocked them off, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, we're against uh, this, this wonderful team, Acadia. And, well, you know, they got Bob Cameron and Bob Stracina and all these guys, and it's like, wow, what about these guys? How can we play against them? Well... Mm-hmm. The interesting thing was we were struggling on defense a little bit because they were so good. And we had a couple of guys on our offense that generally were good players that had that one day of glory that stepped up and and did something. And I sat in total amazement as I watched the guy named Bill Rozalowski run for 200 and some odd yards in that game and become the MVP of that game. So, you know, we put in a couple changes at halftime. Darwin Simodiak, our coach, uh, uh, was able to do that. And I was just sitting around watching and taking it all in because I wasn't the leader at that time. I was a, a major contributor, but not, not the leader at that time. And uh, I was just absolutely engrossed by everything. It consumed me mm-hmm. and uh, rather than me trying to consume it. And it was just one of those, wow, unbelievably – uh, it, how many other guys do you know that have played Canadian college football and are going to have ever ex- experienced this? You know, we got the, the 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 special ring that was made by Western when they won their their '71 uh, um, Vanier Cup and whatnot. It was just a great grouping of guys that all got together and shared one common goal, and uh, you know that was to come out as as a winner. 
I mean, we had a lot of fun. We had a great bunch, uh, old guys and young guys. I mean, there was a guy on my team that was 28 years old. You know, I'm, he's 10 years older than me. Mm -hmm. My first year university. And this was the kind of thing that was like, it didn't matter whether you were 18 and they called you John Boy. You know, I walked in there and my blue overalls this first season I was there and they go, huh, John Boy, Mr. Walton. I was like, mean, I was just a baby, 17, eight, just turned 18 years old, you know, so they were all, but they were great people. They were great friends and to be surrounded by them all and to be a participant in such a thing with 21,000 people at uh, Varsity Stadium mm-hmm. in that, on that night game. My family was there. There had to be 35 people from my family there, uncles, aunts, cousins, everybody that I knew was there. And, you know, it was just an experience beyond uh, – for anything that had happened up until that point in time, there had been nothing like it. And quite frankly, the second College Bowl Vanier Cup, even though it was a great win and a great victory as well, didn't have mm-hmm. the same allure as the first one. The first one was special. It was spectacular. The crowds mm-hmm. – the crowds, uh, they stopped the game at halftime, and maybe that's what helped us. You know, mm-hmm. there was some kind of divine intervention because the crowds came onto the field at halftime. The the uh, Toronto police and their horses were out on the field and wow. kind of trying to establish control. But that gave us an extra 30 minutes to conceive of the plan and the defense to stop what they were doing. And it worked. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there was some manifest destiny there somewhere. Wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. What a trip for you. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's let's switch over to what you and I and, and uh, my producer, Barb Perry, were talking about uh, before going live. And I had asked you what your comfort level was on me broaching the subject of domestic violence in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And because uh, <clears throat> I was totally going to take my cue from you on that one because, you know, some people just don't like putting themselves in a position where something contentious can come back on them. Although this is your point of view, it's your perception, it's your opinion. So... Uh, so why don't we talk a little bit about that, and why don't you kind of reiterate some of what you were mentioning to us uh, again before we were going live about your stance on the whole subject? Certainly. Well, domestic violence is not news to the world. It's been around since the dawn of man, and um, it, it is a horrible – violence by itself is horrible in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to have uh, irrational behavior – uh, take the place of rational thought is is something that I, I don't understand. I, I can't, uh, you know, I learned how not to be irrational off the field because on the field sometimes if I hit on the field like or off the field like I hit on the field, it would mm-hmm. not be a very pleasant world because somebody did, you know, cut me off on the road and I went out and did that. So we had to learn how to control ourselves, and we do. We do. We're under control. And when you lose your your cool or whatever it is with the domestic violence, I'm not an expert on domestic violence. Trust me on that. It's it's, it's a it's a topic that uh, I know very little about in, un, un, until it gets into the public domain, where now you have a couple of um, uh, of, of cases that were pretty darn vivid, camera work and all that kind of stuff. And what whether you condone it or part of it. Hate it or not is not the point I'm making here. Um, the point is that it's, a, it's brutal. It's horrible. It shouldn't be part of our society, but yet it maintains itself. So do a host of other crimes that are out there. It is a crime. It's a criminal activity, and there's no place for it in a, in a civilized world. But the civilized world is also um, subject to who needs to get their pound of flesh out of it. You know, the two people involved or three people involved or 15 people involved in the violent setting 
are the only ones that are there. And the, legal, the legality of it is between them and the legal system, whether it's civil, whether it's uh, criminal, whether it involves both. But it's been brought to the National Football League, you know. And it does. it's not just exclusive to the National Football League. It just happened to be the guinea pig. It happened to be the one where, oh, my goodness, look at this. And someone says, you know what, Goodell, this is your responsibility. What's the NFL going to do for this? Mm-hmm. Well, what right does anybody have to ask the NFL to make, uh, you know, to make remarks or um, uh, judicious or judicial decisions when that's not their purview? It never mm-hmm. has been and it never will be. The fact that the National Football League happens to have an individual or individuals who may have been involved in criminal activity, whether it's domestic violence or otherwise, it is not their position to be judge, jury, and executioner. It's mm-hmm. not their responsibility. And for anybody to put the pressure on Roger Goodell to say, I am going to suspend this man because of this, well, they've already waived whatever right to a civil or criminal trial or to face a jury of one's peers as our world has been formulated in the Western world. It's not Roger Goodell's position or spot to have to be forced to put himself into a position like that. Let me, let me, sorry, John, I don't mean to yeah. interrupt, but let me, I'm going to lose this thought if I don't uh, jump in here. So is that still your belief when certain things are caught on tape and they go viral and it's very clear without it having at that point gone before a judicial system to see very clearly the actions of one perpetrating onto another human being, whether it be in an elevator, whether it be in whatever, do you still feel that? You know, that I, I've forgotten the gentleman's name and it's unfortunate. It was a, that was one of the most horrific things that anybody has been witness to, you know. It's not. Wow. People see things like that on a regular basis. But to go viral and all of this stuff, everybody, it gives reason for people to pause. Mm-hmm. And, and they go, oh, my goodness, what happened? Unfortunately, unfortunately, and, again, this is why we have a judicial system. And I, I'm not saying that the guy was right. What he did was patently, patently wrong. Right. Absolutely. Disgusting in my in, in my way of thinking, but mm-hmm. you didn't see, we didn't see, nobody saw the moments prior to, nobody heard any communication going on during. I'm just saying that I absolutely do not condone what was seen because it was brutal. However, then, then based on that, do those things even matter? Like if we if we're not privy to the conversation, if we're not privy to the interactions between both parties prior to what does unfold publicly, which then goes viral, if we're saying that there's no excuse and there's no justification, does it even matter what led up to it? Uh, no, 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 not the outcome part of it. The outcome, right. of, the outcome of lack of control or lost control is inexcusable. Right. And, and, that, and it will always be inexcusable. Right. However... The National Football League is not to be called the jury or the judge or the trial process. Mm-hmm. I believe that we already have a judicial system. Whether we think the judicial system works or is broken or could use an overhaul, that's not the question. The question is there is already a series or a system of mechanical uh, processes that are followed or should be followed during any of these things. Mm-hmm. Should the National Football League suspend this guy? You know what? It's horrible. I, I'm not quite clear as to whether they should, but I can tell you that the National Football League has no right nor purview to be in the bedrooms 
or the houses or on the street of anything like that unless it is a like a, a crime that they have actually done. Now, to say that we will suspend subject to is, is something that remains to be discussed, I think. But when you don't have condition for it and you're pressured into doing something like that because everybody's calling for the head, God, it was awful. I'd be calling for somebody's head too. But the National Football League is not the judicial system. And for Goodell to have to make that decision, I thought he was more right in just kind of sitting back passively during the process while due process took its place. Now, do you mm-hmm. suspend a guy for that without pay? The police seem to do it all the time. I don't know whether you do that. That's a great question, and I haven't really thought enough about it or had enough discussion on it. But I don't think it's the purview of the National Football League to make those decisions. It now, it now puts a fair trial or an unfair trial right on the plate, because somebody has already made a, uh, a decision on it. So whether it's right or it's wrong, no, we know it's wrong, the outcome. Right. So it, 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 it's, well, it's, an ugly, it's an ugly scenario. It but is. But it's not the National Football League's responsibility to, to make judgments on that. If you have a drug abuse policy and you are busted for drugs, then suspend them was a policy in place that if we have evidence of domestic violence, then we will suspend you. Domestic violence isn't like taking a drug test. It, it is a very, very complicated set of circumstances. And it, it's one that I, you know, a policy should be established. But at that point in time, and over the last year or so that we've seen it come to, come to light and go viral, you know, mm-hmm. there wasn't a policy in place. It should have been Goodell's position or the NFL's position to, we will come up with a policy. We don't have one at this time. What can we do? This has never occurred before. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate on this one. Okay, so in... I I understand what you're saying about nobody has the right to be in anyone else's bedroom and home and all of that. And, you know, the judge and jury, you know, who are we to decide upon those types of things before uh, perhaps turning someone else's life upside down? However, in the instance of something having gone viral, whether that's right, whether that's wrong, but the fact remains, if that's something that's already been leaked and it's out there, and we already say that there's no excuse to condone such behavior regardless of what tidbits of the conversation that led up to such action. It's not justifiable. It doesn't matter. It it, it doesn't meet the criteria for anything constituting what we do see mm-hmm. and what we can very clearly see as being inexcusably. It's just wrong. So it, in a situation like that, before it goes before the judicial system, mm-hmm. but it's very clear that there has been, uh, you know, inappropriate conduct, uh, that abuses have been perpetrated. Um, do you really believe that there needs to be some type of legislation or some type of policy put into place, such as what would represent that in the case of the example of you use for a drug test? You know, if we as a society say that we're zero tolerance and it's non-negotiable, we don't condone that, do you really feel a piece of legislation for something that very clearly happened which everybody saw over and over and over again. You know, and I say that because, you know, 
and I'm sure, and you can speak to this, you know, you, you probably, it was a badge of honor for you to belong to the CFL. It was a badge of honor for you to be a part of the Thai Cats. And so with that goes the inherent responsibility of just not, you know, all the privileges and the accolades, but, you know, people believed in you, people endorsed you, and you are part of the collective. You are part of a team. You're representing, you're, you're representing your city. You're representing a league. So, you know, if, if something, if something were to happen to you or you were responsible for doing something and you at the core level knew that what you did was wrong and everybody witnessed that what you had done was wrong, would you not feel, uh, that it would be the right of the league to say, you know what, we don't condone that behavior. And, you know, whether you're talking the micro level, you're talking the macro level, whether it's a principal in a school, whether it's the police in a community, whatever it might be, you know, there needs to be some form of consequence. And if you're attached, if your identity is attached to the people on your team, your mates, your coaches, you know, everybody who's rallied behind you, endorsements, you know, people who have sponsored you, um, you don't think that that would be a natural, uh, clear consequence that, yeah, you know, if, if you understand how you are representing the league and you then choose to individually behave like that, can you really truly separate that from the league? Can you really say that the league shouldn't feel inclined to uh, issue some kind of uh, consequence that shows uh, that there's a boundary there or that there is a set of standards, a, a set of expectations that people who are athletes who belong to do need to uphold. Like, do you not believe that? Oh, totally. I absolutely. Okay. There's a code of conduct that, uh, that is, it's not breakable. It's a bond right. that you have. Look, the, the public pays my salary. Okay. Right. As, as a professional athlete, they're the people that allow me to eat each day because they buy the tickets. Right. They're, they are entitled to have good behavior and good right. behavior at all times. Hey, you know what? We're all guilty of a little bit of bad behavior on occasion, but right. go, going to the extreme that we all saw on that viral video, yeah. what I'm what I'm disappointed in only is that mm-hmm. there was no policy in place to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So the policy and to call upon under, under, in, under reactionary circumstances is, is, the wrong way of doing things. The league itself already had or should have had a code of conduct, and I'm pretty sure it's part of the standard player's contract. I know okay. it was definitely part of the standard player's contract in the CFL as I was involved in many of them. Right. And uh, uh, the code of conduct should have been really clear and should have been done immediately and it, for all types of behavior that are unbecoming of the uh, quality of person that we want to have in the National Football League or in the CFL or any other league for that matter. Quite frankly, the code of conduct should be there for all people. And right. He, it could have been done way differently than it was. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is when it's done as a reactionary thing, due process is no longer permitted. And the problem, the, the, we may not have the best system in the world, but it is a better system than so many other. Mm-hmm. And due process should be allowed unbiased. I mean, the, the bias is pretty bad when you see the video. So, I mean, there's no such thing as bias in that one. I mean, it was pretty obvious. But right. nevertheless, process still has to be served and has to be done. The National Football League's policy was non-existent at the time. 
and mm-hmm. at least to my knowledge. And uh, unfortunately, it was long overdue, the reaction from the league and all of that stuff. But I'll tell you what, somebody goes and smacks somebody on the street, he's liable. And if he's mm-hmm. been charged or whatever, and and that's conduct unbecoming, and it's obvious like that, well, you have to make that. But where does the slippery slope start and stop? Right. I had a traffic violation. I was 17 miles an hour over the speed limit. Does that constitute an intervention by the league to suspend you? Well, what I would I mean, like I mean, to... I, I, there, there are two almost diametrically opposed ends of the spectrum. I agree yeah. with that. But my point is, at some point in time, the continuum meets in the middle. Right. Where does that start and stop? What? I'm, and I'm, I'm not being condoning at all, because that was brutal. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah I, I don't get that from you at all. I, I don't. I just uh, – so, you know, what I what, the other thing that I would like to say, I don't know how much time we're going to have left to get into the subject of brain injury in sport, but, yeah. um, you know, what I would like to say uh, as an add-on to that is, you know, maybe this is a bit idealistic of me, but what I would like to think is for anybody, and, and we'll, we'll reference the, the NFL athletes who are in this case, like Ray yeah. Rice, Adrian Peterson, the list goes on. So – you know, what I would like to say is that if there is a certain level of inherent accountability, if there is a certain level of personal responsibility and remorse for the actions uh, of what took place, you know, what I think would be representative uh, on one level uh, in taking a step forward at the athlete's perspective is, you know what, I, without anything necessarily coming down on me in the terms of consequence or decisions that need to be weighed out or policy yet still needing to be written about this issue, I feel like I have let my teammates down. I feel like I've let the league down. I've let my fans down. Never mind the person who was on the receiving end of, you know, the abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I need to figure out what's wrong with me. I need to take a step back here. And until I get my act together, I have no right being on that field calling myself a teammate. So that's just my opinion. I, I think it would be really nice to see uh you know it's um i don't know how much gray area is within all of that but i mean for somebody who truly and i know we're not necessarily talking athlete specific we kind of are relating to the show but in general for anybody who truly steps up to the plate to say you know what i totally messed up and chances are it's not the first time we may have caught that the first time we may have bore witness to that the first time but that's not something that just you know uh, just surfaces. There's usually a history there. There's underlying issues going on. Um, so I think, you know, if somebody was really at a point of wanting to redeem themselves or uh, reclaim some of the integrity or the respect that they've perhaps lost throughout the course of all of that, it would be nice to see people just say, you know what, before putting people in a position to have to decide how I need to be handled on this, I want to kind of offlift some of that burden and some of that kind of responsibility and just say, you know what, I totally messed up here. I've got some things I need to figure out, and if I'm going to call myself a teammate, if if I'm going to, you know, uh, re- again reclaim some of the respect that I've lost here from my fans and from my coaches and from the league, uh, you know, let me make that decision a little bit easier for you. I'm going to remove myself. I'm going to go get some counseling, and I'm going to sort myself out. It'd be nice to see that. Absolutely, and and those services are available. And, right. uh, and, and, and I wish that more people would stand up in this world for not just sports, but for many, many other things and be accountable. Accountability Absolutely. is something that doesn't seem to be the, 
the master of our world anymore. There, there are so many uh, non-accountable situations. I don't know if that's the right world, but idealistically speaking, uh, I follow you and believe you and trust what you said because it's true. It's right. It's just. But individuals are too busy trying to hide and trying to, you know, say it wasn't as bad as it was instead of standing up. You know what? I did something really wrong here. There are yeah. a lot of people that do stand up and do things that are, say that it's really wrong what I did and I need to uh, go and deal with it. And right. I think Adrian Peterson probably has done that to an extent. I'm not sure the other guy has. And right. I hate to single out anybody for doing stuff like that because, you know, I don't know these people. I don't know their lives. I don't know what's behind them. But, look, if you spit on the sidewalk and someone's not happy with it and you were wrong for doing that, you better clean it up. Apologize Absolutely. and clean it up and, you know, nobody's any worse for the wear. But if you do right. something that's fundamentally wrong, right. uh, you know, you, you've got to be accountable. Absolutely. That's what the judicial system is supposed to do. Unfortunately, the judicial system's tied up with so many pitfalls and slow process, and due process almost never happens because there's legal wrangling and whatnot. You know, that video is pretty self-explanatory. Absolutely. You know, well, so you know, John, it, 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 I... It, it's something I hope I never see again, but I can promise you it's going to happen again. Violence right. in the world is not a good thing. Right. So. Well, unfortunately, we've only got a couple minutes here, and I was hoping that we were going to get to the subject of uh, brain injury. But, I mean, domestic violence is a very uh, important topic and, in my opinion, would supersede the brain injury, although, you know, I'm passionate about both and both having a place in this conversation. So I just want to say thank you very much for joining me, John. It's been a treat. It was lovely meeting you in person. And, uh, you know, I, I'm very, very grateful to you giving up an hour of your time because I know how immensely busy you are and all the different pockets that you've got your hands in. So I just want to say thank you. I think you're a wonderful human being. Uh, you're admired by many. And uh, just keep doing all the good stuff that you keep doing for your community and for other people that you continue to mentor. And uh, and just the description of what you shared about how your children are, are flourishing and thriving and what they're accomplishing. You've obviously done a phenomenal job as a parent. So good on you. And, uh, and thanks for buying my book. And I hope I see you again sometime soon. Well, you know what, Lisa, if you ever want to go back to the subject of brain injury or any other topic for that I'll matter, have you back I, on. I know I'm not a resident on. expert in the field of domestic violence, but uh, I have opinions on lots of things. Yeah, so if absolutely. you ever want to have me back, I'd be more than happy to come back, and I want to thank you for having me on your program. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you, John. And thank you to uh, our listeners. I just want to say thank you for joining us here on my show, Carpe Diem, with John Priestner. And uh, please join me live next Friday at 11.04 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Everybody, enjoy your day. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks for tuning in. Talk soon. Lisa McDonald, author.com. Lisa McDonald, Dundas, Ontario, Canada. Take care. You've been listening to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. For more information, please go to Lisa's website at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.